welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Jeremiah chapter 30 tonight. And uh, probably no surprise to anybody, uh, I have introductory words. (laughs) We need to kind of really dig down into this chapter Because if you want to raise a controversy in the modern church, all you have to do is talk about God's future plans for Israel. Does God, in fact, have future plans for the nation Israel? Or has the concept of Israel changed in such a way that when we see terminology referring to Israel, both in the Old and New Testament, God is really telling us, what he plans to do in the church. And the two sides of that controversy are really hermeneutical questions. What I mean by that is, what we're going to read tonight says what it says. I mean, just plainly. I just don't even have to work hard to make it say what it says. And then on the face of it, on the surface of it, It very clearly, very obviously spells out a future for national Israel that has not yet been accomplished. And so if we actually believe the Bible for what it says, then we need to come down on the side of, okay, God has not done that yet, so it must be something that he intends to yet do. The fact that he hasn't done it in a couple thousand years now has led people to say, well, then maybe God didn't mean that. And so instead of reading the Bible at face value for what it says on the page, they begin interpreting. And I think some of them do it with good intention. Some of them are doing it to try to apologize in the truest sense of that word, to form an apologetic for the Bible, to help God save face in order to say, no, no, the things that God promised Israel, he actually has accomplished. It's just that he is doing it in a spiritual way. He's doing it in some spiritualized form, and he's doing it primarily within the church. When we read Jeremiah 30 tonight, I hope you see the impossibility of that position, because God is going to speak so specifically about the very people who he has put into captivity, people who he has scattered out of the land of Jerusalem, who he is going to regather and replant in Jerusalem, those exact self-same people who he refers to as the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's language that is just so difficult to analogize as anything other than the specific people who make up Israel and Judah. Now, in order to understand Jeremiah so far, what we've seen in the book, 
the first big portion of the book of Jeremiah has been prophecies mostly regarding Judah being taken into captivity in Babylon. But at the point that Jeremiah is prophesying, the ten northern tribes have already been taken into the Assyrian captivity. The Assyrian conquest of Israel started around 740 B.C., and the capital, Samaria, was taken in 722 B.C. So that's the period of time when the ten northern tribes were taken into captivity. Jeremiah then begins prophesying around 627, 626 B.C. We're told it's the 13th year of King Josiah's reign. And so we're talking about a good period of time since that captivity happened that Jeremiah starts predicting the next captivity, which is going to be Judah, the southern kingdom, taken into Babylon. And the Jews are taken captive into Babylon around 607. That's when it begins all the way until 586 B.C. That's the period when the things that Jeremiah has been predicting actually happened. So those prophecies that make up the chief main portion of the book of Jeremiah are the prophecies that he was to give to the kings, to the leaders in Jerusalem, to the prophets, to the priests, telling everybody that God was angry at them because of their sin, because of not keeping his Sabbaths, because of not letting the land lay fallow when it was supposed to, chasing after other gods. In fact, what we're going to see here in chapter 30 is that God is going to talk about the depth of the injury of what the people of Judah has done or have done. I'm an English major. <laughs> He's going to say it's like a wound. It's an incurable wound. He's going to say you're just so sick at this point that nobody's going to be able to help you if I don't do something for you. So that is the depth of what Judah has done in order to bring down God's wrath and ire on them so that he does transport them into Babylon so that they remain there in captivity until 537 B.C., which is when Cyrus, exactly as Isaiah predicted 150 years in advance, when Cyrus forms a decree to allow them to go back and rebuild the temple, rebuild the city walls, a decree that is later re-implemented by Artaxerxes, and that takes us into the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the time of Esther, pretty much the end of the Old Testament. So that's the big picture. I hope that helps you fit Jeremiah's prophecies in here because in chapter 30, it's going to begin sounding like God is saying, I'm going to do exactly what I said I'm going to do. It's going to be 70 years, and at the end of 70 years, you're going to come back. You're going to rebuild the temple, and you're going to rebuild the walls, just like I said. Except that then God is going to do what we've seen so many times in these prophetic passages. He's going to speak way beyond the moment that is right there ahead of them and reach eschatologically to an end that simply cannot be found in the pages of human history anywhere yet. And it's very much like what is happening to Daniel. At the very time that Jeremiah has been prophesying 
And at the time that he is still in Jerusalem, Daniel has been taken with the first wave of deportees, and he is in Babylon. And he is receiving visions from angels. God is revealing through dreams of Nebuchadnezzar what is going to happen there in the Middle East. And Daniel's visions go beyond just what's immediately going to happen right there to Babylon. Yeah, Medo-Persians coming, Greece is coming, Rome. But then he leaps to the end, this ten-toed kingdom that is followed by this stone kingdom that crushes all the other kingdoms, <laughs> that Christ is going to set up his kingdom that's going to be an everlasting kingdom. It's the same thing you find in Jeremiah 30. The same way God works through Daniel in Babylon and Jeremiah in Jerusalem in order to say, I'm not giving up on Israel. They are going to come back to this land. I am going to gather them from all the places I have scattered them. And then I'm going to punish them. Yes, but then I'm going to plant them. And then I'm going to build them. And then they're going to have this kingdom where David himself is going to be their king. And then all of a sudden you're into all the eschatological kingdom language. So whether we're talking about Daniel at that moment in Babylon, whether we're talking about Jeremiah in Jerusalem, God is saying the same thing over and over. And that is more than adequate witness. You would think at some point we would just read what he said and believe it. And that is certainly the position that we take here at GCA, that these things have yet to be accomplished They are still waiting to be accomplished. And when we read the language tonight, it's going to be impossible not to say that these are things that have not been accomplished yet. And if we believe that this is the very word of God, then these are things that yet have to be accomplished. By the way, these things that God is saying he's going to accomplish are riding on the back of things Jeremiah has already predicted that have actually happened in time in history, exactly the way God said. And the continuation of that thought is stuff that hasn't happened yet. So based on the fact that we can look back on history and say, well, God actually accomplished all these things exactly like he said he's going to, we have to conclude that he also intends to keep the rest of it exactly the way he says it because he's already laid down the pattern of how he is going to accomplish these things. Am I making sense? Yes. Well, that's because the Bible makes sense. And so let's start reading Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. That's everything we've read for the first 29 chapters. All the stuff we've been reading is the stuff that Jeremiah was told, write down. Now, what was the purpose for it being written down? The purpose was so that God could put a date stamp on it, where he said, okay, this was written down at a particular time in history, and I said particular things were going to happen, and then those things actually did happen. Therefore, you can go back and check it. You can go back and look and say, sure enough, the word of God came true exactly the way he said it was going to come true. So God wanted a running record from Jeremiah of the things that he had said, the things that he had predicted, the things that were actually coming true and occurring, And in the midst of that, stuff that hasn't happened yet. 
So write these things down in a book. Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. You're going to see that phrase quite a bit in the next couple of chapters. Days are coming. This is God speaking out into the future and saying what he's going to do, what is going to be accomplished between him and his people in future days. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The reason that is really stunning is because I began by telling you that the northern ten tribes, the ones that we refer to now as the lost tribes, the ones who went into the Assyrian captivity, the northern ten tribes, which are called Israel, which are called Mount Ephraim, which are called Samaria. Those ten tribes were taken into the Assyrian captivity years before Jeremiah is saying this. The southern tribes, which are made up of basically Judah and Benjamin and the the priests, the Levites that worked there in the temple, That was known collectively as the house of Judah. So you've got the house of Israel in the north, the house of Judah in the south. During the time of the Assyrian captivity, you might remember that Assyria got right to the gate of Jerusalem, but they weren't able to conquer Jerusalem because God sent an angel that night and pretty much wiped out the army of Assyria in one night. Okay, they got right to the edge, but they weren't able to take the southern kingdom. But the ten northern tribes are taken into captivity, and the church, by and large, these days says, well, then that's it. That's the end of it. But you will notice that the promise, because God knows what he's talking about and what he's done with his people and how he has divided them between the northern and southern kingdom, and that the northern kingdom have gone into the Assyrian captivity, he takes the time to say, days are coming when I will restore the fortunes not just of Judah, but of Israel. And then you see all these promises later on where God says that he's going to gather all 12 tribes and that David is going to be their king and that the kingdom of Christ is yet again going to rule over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. And the fact that they've been lost this many years is nothing to God. He knows where they are. He can go find them. He can go gather them. Or you have to say that there are things that are just too difficult for God. Well, people got lost, and oh, well, he he meant to keep them. He, He just, he lost them. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. And Yahweh says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers and they shall possess it. What is the land that God gave to their forefathers? That's the Abrahamic covenant. That's the promise to Abraham that this land belongs to you and your posterity in perpetuity. It belongs to you forever. God hasn't forgotten that. He hasn't forgotten that promise. He hasn't forgotten that covenant. Therefore, he says, even though he is punishing Israel, even though he is punishing Judah, he also declares, I'm going to bring you back to the very land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm going to plant you in that land, and you will ultimately possess it. Now, is there anything there that is vague or difficult to understand? 
No, the words are plain on their face. The difficulty we have is that we're time-bound creatures, and it's been a long time. And so we have a hard time fathoming that God could do something like that. And yet he says, that's what I'm going to do. Here, I'll put it this way. I believe that Jesus is coming back. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is coming back? Yeah. That was promised 2,000 years ago. It's been a long time. He hasn't come back yet. So should we start then allegorizing the idea that Christ is coming back? Should we say, well, every time a new person comes to faith, that is like Jesus coming back for them personally? Is that what we should do? Or should we say, no, God said it, and he meant what he said, and the promise was that he was going to be back. In fact, what the angel said was, why do you men of Galilee stand here gazing up into the sky? This same Jesus is going to return to you in like manner as you saw him go. How did he go? He fluttered up into the sky, was enveloped by clouds, and he was taken away into heaven. And he's going to come back, according to the book of Revelation, on clouds of glory, the same way he went. The stars are going to go dark, the sun and the moon are going to go dark, and the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens like the lightning from the east to the west. Everybody's going to observe it and then run for the rocks and the caves and the dens and say, hide us from the wrath of that one that's coming back. Okay, that's all quite literal language, and therefore we believe it in a literal fashion. This is equally literal language, saying that God is going to Go get Judah and Israel and plant them in the land that he promised them to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that that promise of planting them in that land forever is an unconditional promise that God made to Abraham, and God doesn't break covenants. If you say that Israel is not ultimately going to end up in that land and dwell there in peace and safety, and have that long-awaited, repeatedly promised kingdom, if you say that's not going to happen, then you have to say that God breaks covenants. Mm. And you don't want a God that breaks covenants because he made a covenant with you that he's going to save you through the finished work of his son. You don't want a capricious God. You don't want a God who can say, sure, I know I said that, (coughs) but I didn't mean it. That's not a God you can count on. So if you are confident that the covenant-keeping God is going to save you, you also have to say that that same covenant-keeping God has to keep the Abrahamic covenant, and that means he has to bring Israel and Judah back to their land. Mm -hmm. Am I making sense? Yes. Okay. Verse 4. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. The obvious answer is no, he can't. Despite what people might try to say today, uh, the answer is no. So far, everybody on the planet, all the billions of them, were all born to a woman. So far, people born to a man, zero. Goose egg, none, nada, didn't happen. And yet God says, why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in childbirth? What he's saying is everybody's in pain. 
Everybody is pained because I have heard this sound of terror and of dread, and there is no peace, and I see people clutching themselves in pain. Why? Verse 7, because alas, that day is great, and there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress, but he, Jacob, will be saved through it. Really, really important language. This is language that permeates the Old Testament. Jesus picks it up in the New Testament, so it's necessary to look at it and talk about it for just a moment. Because not only is this a description of the Great Tribulation, the language is the same. The language of people in misery and this time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again, Jesus talks about it. Daniel talks about it. In fact, Tom, if you would, just look up Daniel 12, verse 1. I'm going to turn to Matthew 24. Daniel chapter 12, read verse 1 for us. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Notice the similarity. Daniel in Babylon is getting the same information that Jeremiah in Jerusalem is getting right around the same time. And the information is there's a time of trouble coming such as never was or ever would be again. Jeremiah specifically says that it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Who is Jacob? Israel. Israel. It's a time specifically of Israel's distress, Israel's punishment. It is the culmination of God finalizing his punishment against them. But notice that Jeremiah says, but he, Jacob, will be saved through it, will be saved from it depending on what kind of preposition you want to use there, how you want to translate that preposition. They're going to go through it, but they're going to be saved despite it, and they're going to be saved ultimately from it. Daniel said that everybody who's written in the book is going to be delivered through it. Same thing. Time of trouble, such as never was, ever would be again. But Israel, specifically, It's their trouble, and they're going to be saved through it. Get the picture? It's important to remember because now turn to Matthew 24. I'm going to start reading at verse 15. Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If you're in Judea, what are you? Jewish. It's the Jews, it's Israel that are in Judea. Because this is specifically a prophecy for Israel. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and get things out that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to go get his cloak. That's the suddenness of this terror that's going to strike and that it's going to strike specifically in Judea. And he says, if you're in the field, just go. Don't even go back and get your coat. Just go. 
But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babies in those days. And pray that your flight, your running, may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. That's an interesting little detail. Only the Jews are told to keep the Sabbath. Only Israel are Sabbath-keeping people. So clearly Jesus is identifying the group of people that he's talking to here. He has identified them as law-keeping Israelites, specifically Sabbath-keepers. For then, says verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever shall be. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved or preserved. But for the sake of the elect, it will be cut short. Who are the elect in that sentence? Israel. Israel. There's no church yet. The church hasn't happened. Pentecost hasn't happened yet. The language of the saints, the elect, the chosen people of God, at this point in Jesus' ministry, always refers back to the Jews. So whether you're talking about Daniel, he says this is a punishment for Israel specifically, and they're going to be preserved through it. Jeremiah says this is a time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again. But it is specifically Jacob's trouble, and they're going to be delivered through it. Jesus says it's a time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again even referencing the abomination of desolation that's spoken of by Daniel. So he's working along the same prophetic lines and timetable as Daniel there in referring to this time of trouble such as never was, ever will be again. And in the midst of that, he says that God is going to cut those days short to preserve the elect. Same thing Daniel said, same thing Jeremiah said. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is Christ, or there he is, don't believe them. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you all this in advance. If therefore they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, Don't go out there looking for him. Or behold, he's in the inner room. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Okay, so this sounds like a really bad time that's going to occur. We're back in Jeremiah 30 now. This sounds like a really terrible time that's going to occur. But let's follow the timeline now that Zechariah lays out for us. At the very end of the book of Zechariah, I know I said a moment ago that we were back in Jeremiah. I lied. Don't ever believe me. when anyway. <laughs> Zechariah 14, Zechariah lays out a timeline that is the same timeline that we're seeing over and over and over again. All the prophets are laying out this same order of events. You would think that with that many testimonies, we would believe it, especially considering that Jesus picked it up in the New Testament and kept saying the exact same thing, validating what all these prophets have already said. Chapter 14, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord 
when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. God is going to restore Israel. He's going to plant them again. The things that were taken from them are going to be given back to them. Why? Verse 2, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravaged, and half of the city will be exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will be moved to the north and the other half to the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountain. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you have fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones, all his saints with him. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that in the evening time there will be no light. And it will come about in the day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. And it will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. And all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first tower to the corner tower, from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, and the people will live in it. And there will be no more curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. And their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hands, and the hand of the one will be lifted against the hand of the other. And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in abundance." So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps. And then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king who is the Lord of hosts and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not come to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the families of Egypt do not come up or enter, there will be no rain to fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Okay, so why did I read all that? I mean, the end of it is in that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holiness to the Lord, and on the cooking pots, and in the Lord's house, 
They will be like the bowls that are before the altar. Everything is going to be holiness, and the holiness of God is going to spread out over the earth, and the place of his worship is going to be where his king is seated in Jerusalem, and all the nations that fought against Jerusalem are going to have to come up and bring their wealth and celebrate there and come for the Feast of Booths year by year, or else God will plague them. Notice that that chapter began with, there's a day coming in which the Lord is going to punish you. Then he's going to punish all the nations that punished you. Then he's going to establish his kingdom, bring you back to your land. Jerusalem is going to be the center of all of it. Have I lost anybody yet? Okay, I just want you to keep seeing that timeline because that's the timeline that the prophets keep laying out. Now Jeremiah is going to say the same thing, which means everything I've said up until now is technically introduction. Because now, go back to Jeremiah 30. There is this day, this day of trouble, a great day. There's none like it. It's the time specifically of Jacob's distress, and he will be saved from it or through it. And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck, and I will tear off their bonds, and strangers shall no longer make them their slaves, but they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord. So what was the timeline that we've seen so far in chapter 30? It's going to be a time of punishment, time of trouble such as never was or ever will be again. Right after that, I'm going to gather you back, build your land, plant you in your land, raise up the house of David again, because Christ is, after all, the son of David, who is going to rule on his throne in Jerusalem, and the kingdom is going to be established. And that timeline of trouble, followed by gathering, followed by establishment of kingdom, is the same amongst all the prophets. But they shall serve their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And fear not, O Jacob, my servant. I'm, I'm kind of stunned by that language. This is Jacob, heel catcher. This is Jacob, supplanter. Usually when God wants to point out their sinfulness, he refers to Israel as Jacob. And here he says, Jacob, my servant. How did they go from being rebels against God Chasing after foreign gods, not following his law, not taking care of his land, not following his Sabbaths, to the degree where God had no choice but to punish them and punish them severely, so severely that Jesus and Daniel and Jeremiah say it's a time of trouble like nothing's ever been and ever will be again. That's how bad these people are. And God says, they're my servants. Jacob, my servant, because he's going to restore them, and he's going to put his spirit in them, and he's going to turn them from their evil and bring them to himself. Do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar, and your offspring I will save from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return shall be quiet and at ease, and no one will make him afraid. 
You think there's anybody in Israel right now that feels a little bit of trepidation? <laughs> little fearfulness? Perhaps a little bit afraid? Well, then that prophecy has not come true yet. Are the 10 northern tribes still scattered? Have they been located and brought back to their land? No. They are still scattered. And yet God says, I'm going to gather the offspring, your offspring, back to this land. I'm going to bring them from the land of their captivity. And when I return them to this land, they're going to live quietly and at peace. Hasn't happened yet. I guess the big undercurrent here that isn't said out loud in the text, but that you can feel, is that the only way this can be accomplished can't be Israel's doing. This is all God's doing. This is God keeping covenant and keeping promises that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is a God who is doing all this by grace and nothing but grace because Israel clearly doesn't deserve it. What they deserve is the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, which is pretty much what we all deserve. But the grace of God is such that he will take rebels and sinners and call them servants of his, restore them because of promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and particularly a promise that he made to his own son, that if his son would come to the planet and give himself as a sin offering, it would save his people eternally. That's a covenant that can't be broken. You can't break that, which is really good to know, because mm-hmm. some of us have given Israel a run for their money. <laughs> Okay, so why is he going to do all this? Why is he going to go save them from afar? Go get their offspring from the land of their captivity and then let them live quietly and in ease and nevermore be afraid. Why? Verse 11, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. That's exactly what we just got done reading. That's exactly what we saw in the book of Zechariah, that God was going to restore them and then punish the nations that he utilized to punish them. Jeremiah says the same thing. I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely. What did Jesus say? That those days are going to be cut short for the elect's sake, or else no flesh would survive. Jeremiah says... I'm not going to destroy you, Judah, Israel, completely. But I will chasten you justly. I will punish you, but I have every right to punish you based on your own behavior. And I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable. And your injury is serious. If I just left you alone, you're dead. For there is no one who can plead your cause. There's nobody to stand in front of God and say, well, yeah, they did that. I mean, no human who's going to make a convincing case to God. Well, you really should be beneficent to them. You should be kind to them. After all, they're not that bad. They're so bad they deserve a time of trouble such as never was or ever will be again. And he says your wound and your injury is so serious that there's no one who's going to 
plead your case to me. And there's no healing for your sore. There's no recovery for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. And they do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound that belongs to an enemy. With the punishment that a cruel one would deserve. And because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Okay, so what's the cure for that? You're really, really wounded. You're really, really sick. Head to toe. You're nothing but sickness and disease. That's what he calls their sinfulness, the depravity that dwells within them. He likens to an incurable disease. And on top of that, in order to find some kind of peace and companionship, they've chased foreign gods, which he likens to foreign lovers, as often as he has said that they committed adultery against him. And then he says, and now look at them. They've forgotten about you. You're completely alone. You're completely sick. They're not going to come looking for you. There's no one who can plead your cause for you. And you've been wounded with the kind of wound that evil people deserve. Mm. What's the answer? Jesus. The answer is in Isaiah. By his stripes, we are healed. The chastisement of our peace laid on him. Isaiah already answered the question, what can cure this kind of disease? And when Isaiah predicted it, he was talking specifically about Israel. He wasn't talking about all of your health problems are going to be cured. He's talking about the depth of your sin that is killing you is going to be cured by the finished work of Christ. Jeremiah picks it up. Your sins are so numerous, and your iniquity is so great. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable because your iniquity is great, and your sins are numerous. And that's why I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you will be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. And those who plunder you shall be for plunder. And all those who prey upon you I will give for prey. For I will restore you to health. Amazing! He's talking to Israel and Judah here, who I keep stressing deserve God's ire and anger and wrath. Mm -hmm. And how do they become his servants? Through his grace in restoring them, through his grace, through Jesus Christ, through the finished work of his stripes that are healing Israel. And God says here, your wound is incurable, your sickness is so deep, and you deserve everything you've got coming. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to heal you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to fix it. Grace. Astounding grace. Notice that God did not give any reason outside of, well, I'm your God. You're my people. I'm going to punish you. I'm not going to lose you. And then I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore you to health. I will heal you of your wounds declares the Lord, because 
They have called you an outcast, saying, It's Zion, and no one cares for her. That's why God is going to punish them, because they came down on his people, and even though, here's a mind-blowing concept, even though he used those foreign nations to punish his people, he's then going to turn around and punish those nations for the way that they punished his people. And all those who took a prey from Israel are going to become prey. The same promise. Everything that was taken from you is going to be restored to you again. Well, we'll talk about it in more depth next week, but let me just read the end of the chapter because with that kind of buildup, we need these words. For thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places and the city shall be rebuilt on its ruin and the palace shall stand on its rightful place. And from them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. And I will multiply them, and they shall not be diminished. I will also honor them, and they shall not be insignificant. Their children also shall be as formerly, and their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all their oppressors. And their leader shall be one of them, and their ruler shall come from their midst. That's as opposed to all these foreign kings that have been ruling over them for so many years. Oh, I'm trying not to comment. I have to keep reading. Their ruler shall come forth from their midst, and I will bring him near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intention of his heart in the latter days. You'll understand this. Wow. (laughs) God finishes it by saying to Jeremiah, in the last days, this is all going to make sense. Once you've seen me regather my people, once you've seen me reestablish the kingdom, once you've seen Christ himself sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, once you've seen the foreign nations that used to fight against Jerusalem coming up and doing honor and obeisance to the king of the whole world, once you see the holiness of God spreading out on the earth, once you see Jerusalem living in peace and safety, once you see all 12 tribes gathered again, once you see all of that, including all the punishment I'm going to take them through, and then the restoration that I'm going to give them, when you see all that, you're finally going to understand that I'm the God that can do all that, and there's nobody like me. It's amazing. And he tells Jeremiah, write it down, which is why we're reading it now. (laughs) And we're reading it before it happens, just like Jesus said to his apostles. Remember, I told you beforehand, so that when it happens, you'll remember I said it. God is in the business of proving himself, glorifying himself. And one of the ways that he does that 
is through this kind of prophecy. And that's why I keep emphasizing so far in the book of Jeremiah, all the prophecies about being taken into Babylon, all of those prophecies came true, actually true, in history and in time. Leading up to this chapter, which is full of stuff that hasn't occurred yet. Next chapter, he's going to tell us how it is that he's going to accomplish all that necessarily with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he's going to say, I'll tell you how I'll do that. I'll make a new covenant with them. Not like the old covenant, which they broke. By the old covenant, I had to punish them. By the new covenant, I'm going to be nothing but good and gracious to them. And that new covenant is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's all coming up here in the book of Jeremiah. And it's really just astounding stuff. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.